Thanks. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Really enjoy it. We have been, uh, we went into campus ministry full-time in 2008, and Frisco Bible was one of our first, like, supporters, and uh, you guys have been really encouraging and supportive of us. I was actually thinking about, uh, I was talking to Megan Bennett out in the, uh, the foyer in between services. Megan one time just sent us a note, like, just an encouraging, like, God put it on her heart, and she just mailed us a letter. It was awesome. It's very encouraging. We really appreciate that. So, thank you guys. Appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with y'all this morning. Um, so in the fall of 1996, this is way back in 96, I had a conversation with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, that was, uh, that was really significant. And we had gone through an argument of sorts. So we had um, we started dating in high school, our senior year of high school. And uh, we dated at the, through prom and through the summer. And then we had kind of decided we were going to separate schools for college. And I was going to go to AM, She was going to go to North Texas. And so we had set this thing up like, well, we're kind of breaking up, maybe not sure if we're going to be together or not. At least we're like open to dating other people. And, uh, and so we did that. We made that decision at least. But when we went to schools, two different schools, we found that that was hard. So it put like this strain on like, are we together? Are we not? What are we doing? Debbie was hanging out with some other, some other guys and I was like really jealous of that. And it was just, a, there was a, a strain in our relationship. And so I come home for a weekend um, to Dallas, and we were, uh, we kind of fought the whole weekend. Not, I don't even know what about, it was just, uh, it was just weird, because our emotions were kind of like all over the place. And so we met, I was going to go back to A&M on a Sunday morning, and so we met for breakfast at IHOP, and we had what my college students now would call a DTR, which is a define the relationship talk. We didn't have, we didn't have terms for that back then, but now that, that's what they use. So, um, so we sat across the table at IHOP, we had this emotional conversation, and I said something for the first time to, to Debbie, uh, and I used these words, I said, I love you. And uh, I actually think I soft-pedaled it a little bit more, I was like, I, I think I love you, something like that. <laughs> but but she, she was receptive to that, and she, she responded back, I love you too. And that was a significant moment in my life and in our relationship. And I thought, what does that mean for me then? I was 18 years old, you know, we'd, we'd been dating for a little while. It was in the midst of this, like, argument, very emotional period of time. And what did it mean to say I loved her? You know, what was I expressing or feeling or doing? And I've told her that a thousand times since. I say it every day now. Does it still mean the same thing? Is it still growing or changing? And one of the things about, about what we believe as Christians uh, that's just different from other religions, it's different from every world belief um, or just worldview because we believe this, God wants people to love him. That he's more interested. And not just, he's not interested in just following a set of rules or regulations. Um, he wants, you know, our honor. He wants our worship. He wants all those things, but all of them are secondary to what he communicates. He wants actually a genuine love. Like something that's really, I don't know, something powerful, intimate. A growing love. In Revelation chapter 2, you guys are in the middle of the series on these, these letters. So I think, I don't know if we've covered this one or not. I didn't ask ahead of time. But uh, in chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You've patiently suffered 
for me without quitting, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Some tra translations, you know, older translations says you've, you've left your first love or you've forgotten your first love. If you guys are familiar, you know, if you've been talking about these passages, you know that's Jesus speaking. And Jesus appears to John in the vision, and he's, he's write, he writes very personal letters to these churches that are going through difficult times at that period of time. And Jesus says to them, says to this church in Ephesus, he said, man, I can see, I can see you. I know what you're doing, and I know you're doing some great things. I know that you work hard. I know that you examine whether people are, are teaching the truth or teaching lies. I know that you go through suffering and you're not quitting. I know all that. I can see you're doing a lot of good, obedience-oriented, godly things. But there's something missing. Jesus actually words it as a complaint. I have a complaint with you. You don't love like you did at first. In Christianity, what we believe, that's it. We're the only people that we think God, that matters to God. Other religions, you can just focus more on doing but we believe that genuine love matters to God. And the question for us is, is just how does that look? What does that mean to love God? How do you genuinely love him? What is that? How do we even know what that means? Or how do we ignite and grow love for God? Some of us this morning may feel like I have no idea. I don't know if I've ever genuinely loved God or not. I have, uh, you know, I know that there's rules or, or things to follow, instructions that are good for life. But something real and intimate, I don't know. Maybe at one time you did feel very passionate about God. You went to a summer camp or a worship service and like your, your heart was impacted in some way and you felt something. But now it's become more complacent or going through the motions. And I'm hopeful here, you know, I believe several people here probably are passionate about God. You're loving him. You want to grow in your love for him. But I keep stepping forward in that. So for me, I, I was thinking about the subject this past spring. And uh, we've been in, in campus ministry now for 11 years, which is a long time for, for what we do. Most campus ministers don't make it that long. And uh, I'm, so me, there's only two, I'm, I'm like the old man on campus at UNT, so there's one other, uh, another girl who started the same year I did in 2008. And we're like the two veterans of campus ministry in some ways. And the reason why is like, it's just a hard, it's hard job. I get older every year and the students stay the same. And I pour my life into college students who leave. You know, they leave year after year. And it's starting again, and it's tiring. It can be draining. And I was praying through that um, this past year. I thought, man, God, how do, I, how do I keep this up? I'm still passionate about the campus. It's an unreached people group, you know, right here of this, uh, um, this group at UNT of college students. And I was reading through the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus appears to his disciples, like, post-resurrection. And he's talking to Peter. And as he talks to Peter, he says, he encourages Peter to, to do ministry. He says, I want you to feed my sheep. You know, I want you to shepherd my people. But he asks, before he says that, before he kind of pushes him into ministry, he asks a different question. He asks, Peter, do you love me? And he asks it three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And I was reading through that, and it's like, man, Jesus connects somehow our love for him, my love for him, to my ability to shepherd people or to care about people. I thought, how do I love Jesus? How do I grow in that? How do I ignite and still grow a genuine love for him? And here's the main idea this morning. Our love for God grows. Just how does that, how does that happen for us? It grows as we receive and respond. Love for God is th those two things, reception and response. 
And I want to just look at one passage. It's from the Gospel of Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 12. And kind of break this down a little bit. But Mark chapter 12. You may be familiar with this, this section of Scripture. But it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you guys may be familiar with that passage. It's commonly called the great commandment or the greatest commandment, and it's an instruction from Jesus. We're just going to look at this first part of it, loving God. And what it says here is this pa- in this passage, there's a teacher of the law who's pretty familiar with obeying God. So if he understands the law and he understands what it means to, to follow God in his, uh, you know, in his Judaic religion, he understands what that means to follow God. And he's listening to Jesus' debate, and he notices that Jesus has given some answers to like deep questions. And he thinks, this guy has, some, he has something that I want to know what he thinks about a very important question. And he asks a significant question of Jesus. And it's a question all of us in some way or another ask deep down at some point in life. He asks this question, what is the most important thing I can be doing? What's the number one thing I can be doing with my life? And I feel like that, for me at least, that, first, that question first entered my consciousness maybe like 15 or 16 years old is this realization that like, you know, life is finite and I can do things that matter or things that don't matter. And I kind of want to think, man, what matters in life? Like what's most important for me to live for, the most significant thing I could be doing with my time and my life and my energy. And our culture, you know, it's like our culture, our education system, those attempts to answer that question for us. I mean, you could say like culture, that's one of the main things culture does, is try to say, hey, this is important. You know, it's important to be kind to people, or it's important to make money or serve or whatever. It just, it tells you something about what should be valuable to us and the way we spend our lives. And in this case, the teacher of the law, so this guy, he's talking to Jesus. He asked Jesus a, a question specific to his culture. I mean, he'd grown up in a culture in which it said it's important to obey God. It's important to follow certain commands of God. And at that point, um, in Jesus' time, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had identified 613 specific commands from God. You know, 613 things God said, hey, this is important and we should do it. And uh, anyway, I was thinking through this. I talk to college students a lot about their beliefs. And so I'll ask a lot of times, do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you know just like the top ten commands? I found that most of the time, people don't even know the top ten. They maybe can name like four or five of those. And so I just thought, man, imagine trying to remember 613 commands of God and trying to obey them all. And this guy seems to understand that, man, there's got to be some level of like what's important and what's not. Even within this system of commands and knowing that it's, it's good to obey God. And he asked Jesus, what's the most important one? What's the absolute most important thing I could be doing with my life? And Jesus tells him very directly. He just says, love God. He says, loving God is your highest priority in life. He didn't overcomplicate the question. He gives a succinct and direct answer. He actually picks one of those 613 commands, and he says, that's it. This is it. And that answer that he gives to that guy is still his answer for us today. The most important thing we can ever do, will ever do, the highest priority that defines every other priority in our life, the most substantial thing is to love God. It's to put our love into him. 
And the question for us is just, what, is, what does that mean? How do we do it? Um, so I turned 41 this spring, and for whatever reason, it feels like age just caught up, and I was like, man, I feel genuinely old. And I was passing, this past week, I passed a group of students who were playing like a really competitive game of Ultimate Frisbee. And I remember at one time being like, oh, I want to get in on that, you know, excited about it. And I just thought, there's no way at this point in my life I would, <laughs> I would die. And, uh, but anyway, I've been following the Lord for this period of time, you know, for a long period of time, over 25 years. And I've just noticed with, uh, with Christians and with people that want to love God, generally people have kind of two different leanings. And uh, for, for better, uh, for lack of better terms, I call them heart or action. And so some people tend toward, I mean, if they love God, what that means to them is like a heart expression. And so emotionally or verbally or passionately or enthusiastically, it just, you'll know you love God when you feel you love God. Like I'm excited about God and I'm growing with him and I'm, it's intimate and exciting. Other people tend toward an expression of God, a love for God that I call action oriented. So they, uh, they say, oh man, how I'm feeling may change, you know, week, week by week. But I, I know that I'm going to love God if I'm just buckled down and doing the things he wants me to do. So obedience, action, doing things. They know they love God when they're faithful to obey him. And it's not that different from a romantic relationship, like with your spouse, where one of you might be just like, hey, I just really want you to be more verbally affectionate, tell me you love me more, hold my hand, let's, you know, cuddle every now and then or whatever. And then others might say, man, I, I'm going to really feel loved by you if you would just take out the trash and not leave your shoes on the floor. And there's just this, and we know that. We lean toward one of those two different ways, generally. I, I would guess if we surveyed the room, probably be about half and half in our just natural inclination. But God wants it all. He wants both. When it comes down to how Jesus communicates love for God, how do we grow in love for God? It's both reception and response. Our love for God is ignited and it grows when we receive first love from him and then respond back to him. So how does this look in this passage? So Jesus answered here to this guy. He asked a genuine question. I mean, what's most important? Jesus gives a pretty succinct answer. Love God. But he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a quote for, for uh, this verse, and it's a command of Moses. It's one of those 613 commands. And that command, it says to love God, but it begins with this other sentence. It starts with this sentence. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was a commonly known statement. So, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And why does Jesus use that in this command? Could he have just skipped it? Could he have just said, Love God? And some of you guys may know that this sentence is called the Shema. It's an extremely important sentence in, in Judaic worship. It's something that devout Jewish believers recite twice a day, in the morning or at night. They're supposed to say the Shema as their last words and to, before they go to sleep and to teach them to their kids. They say them to their kids before they're put to bed. It's a centerpiece sentence in the morning and evening Jewish prayer services. And it's a massively, massively important sentence in Jewish worship. And what does it mean? Why did Jesus put that in there? So, breaking it down quickly, but here, the first word of the sentence is the word Shema. That's why it's called the Shema. And it means to listen. Here means to listen. It's the first word of the sentence when it says, Hear, O Israel. And it means listening, but not necessarily just hearing words verbally as much as listening with intent to respond. Like, what you're hearing is really important. So, I found as a parent, like I tell my kids, we have five daughters, 
And I found myself using the word listen a lot. I'll say, listen, kids, listen to your mom or listen to me when I'm talking. And what I mean is not like, I, I know they can hear me verbally, you know, they just, it's, they're not paying attention enough to respond to what I'm saying. And when God says this to these people, he says the same thing. He's like, hear, Shema, listen, people. And I'm not telling you something just because you can hear words, but I want you to respond, have an intent to respond, because what I'm saying is something important for you. And he uses the, he says, hero Israel. Israel is the covenant name for God's people. It's the name God gives when he says this part, hero Israel. There's a ton of meaning in names in the Old Testament, but without expanding on it, what it means is that God's talking to people personally. He's saying, you are my chosen people. I'm talking to you directly as people that I love and care about and have called out. God's addressing people personally. And then it uses two, two words that we both translate the Lord. It says, the Lord our God and the Lord. But those are actually two different names for God. The first one is, the, is Y-H-W-Y, which if you're familiar with that or not, we would say Yahweh today, but uh, it was the personal name for God. He gave it to his people when he made a covenant with them, when he established a relationship with them. He said, you can use this name for me. And it's intimate. It's very personal. It means something very significant. The Jewish uh, scribes viewed that word as too holy to, to write or to say aloud, so they would abbreviate it with those initials. That's why we say Yahweh today. And the second word that it uses is Elohim, which is another name for God, but it means almighty God, or the one who's powerful and rules and he's over all. And God uses both of those names because he's at once both extremely personal and extremely mighty. He's above all. And then it says one. God is one. And that statement, the Lord is one, has a ton of meaning. Within this case, it's more, it certainly means that there's, there's not like multiple gods, you know. But in this case, it means that God himself is the source. He's a singular point from which everything comes, the uncreated creator. He gives all things. And this is the beginning point of Jesus' command to love him. He starts with this sentence. He says, listen, your personal and your mighty God is the sole source of everything for you. I tried to write this out as like something, like if I were to receive that or hear that from God, what it would mean to me personally is what I wrote. If God were to say, listen, Josiah, and recognize that this is important. The most mighty God, who's also your loving dad, he's going to be your sole source for everything. That's what the Shema meant to the Jewish people. It was so important because it meant that God was personally with them, that he, the creator, the source of everything, he wanted to speak to them intimately and closely is a statement of faith that said, I receive the grace and the choosing of God. So I put a quote in here that I, uh, I, from an article that I was reading on the Shema. It said, the reciting of the Shema was linked with reaffirming a personal relationship with God's rule. Literally, reciting the Shema was stated as receiving the kingdom of heaven. Why is that important when it comes to loving God? So you guys have heard, I, I'm, I'm going to assume, that you guys have heard this common statement. It comes from psychology or, or uh, sociology, but uh, it says hurt people hurt people. It means that hurt, hurting people, people who've been hurt, like uh, mentally or physically or emotionally, they in turn hurt other people. And there's kind of this cycle of hurt that's perpetuated until something steps in and breaks it. And that's a true statement that happens. In our society, we see it all the time. Hurt people hurt people. But the opposite is true, too, is that loved people love people. 
People who are loved can love others. And when God rescued the Jewish people from slavery, these people that Moses writes this command to initially in Deuteronomy chapter 6, who they were were hurt people. They were a group of slaves who had only known mistreatment and abuse and rejection. They had wandered in the desert for a long time. They were vagabonds. They had been alone. They were hurting, insecure, messy people. Then God steps in and he asks them to love him, to have a genuine love for him. And he starts with saying, who who you are is no longer hurt. You're loved. And you're chosen. And the beginning point of God igniting anybody's heart of love for him, it just starts with him saying, I love you. I love you. God above, personally cared for, loved, and would absolutely be everything for this people, that he was it. And this is the same, it's the same thing we believe in the gospel. We believe that you and I, too, were hurt people. We've been hurt by sin. We sin and we hurt others. We perpetuate the cycle. At some point, Jesus steps in. He says, I want to save you. I love you enough to save you. And I'm going to be your source for everything. And you're no longer hurt, but you're loved. And the Shema declared that the personal God who called people by his personal name for them is their source of all blessing, all love, all goodness, and all care. That he's it. And love for God, if we're going to do this, if we're going to obey the greatest thing God ever said to do, it starts for us the same way, is we receive from him. We receive his love. New Testament writers write about this a lot. In 1 John, uh, the Apostle John, he says, he says this in chapter 4. It says, love comes from God. He's the source of it. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In verse 16, it says, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. He writes about it when he's talking about love. He says, the beginning point of love of love for God, of love for others. Any love that we have, it comes from receiving love from him. He's the source. Anything that we have that's loving starts with him. If we're going to ignite and cultivate a love for God that's growing, we start with the same place, just receiving it from him. It's the only place it can start because he's the only source of love. And so for you and I, if we're going to follow this command, this is what I feel like for me, if I'm going to follow this command, I've got to step into God's love like on a daily basis. I receive it again. I celebrate it again. I revel in it. I embrace it. I declare it. I, I sing it. I celebrate it. I shout it. I meditate on it. And I'm loved by God. It's reception. And the second point is this that Jesus makes. Loving God is reception. It's also a response. We can't do the second without the first, but those who have received his love can do it. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. All of the commands hang on to that one. They flow from it. They come from it. And there's four four areas that Jesus points out here. Different people can draw different, like, distinctions in each of these. And uh, without a lot of depth, here's what I kind of think these might mean. But Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart. That's your emotions. Your heart is your emotions, your passion, your enthusiasm, your expressiveness. The part of you that laughs and cries and like, you know, just feels, emotes. God wants you to love him with all your heart. And for your soul, the inner you, who you are distinctly, it's your unique personality and gifting and talents. It's the deepest part of who God created you to be. God wants you to love him with all your soul. 
with your mind, your understanding, your thoughts, your reasons, your logic, the part of you that processes truth and says what is true and thinks about things. God wants you to love him with all your mind. And your strength, your effort, your energy, your hard work, your body, your resources, your finances, your time, everything you do, all of your activity. God wants you to love him with all your strength. And you could break those down further in some way, but the main point of what Jesus is saying is this, I want you to love me with absolutely everything. There is no part of your life that you withhold. Your emotion, your passion, your personality, your gifting, your understanding, your energy, your action, and you love God with all of it. That's a high, that's a high call. It requires a lot. Um, this spring, so in our campus group, we had, we had three different couples get married, and that tends to happen in campus ministry, so, uh, so we just couples get together in college, and they get married. And I was performing the wedding ceremony for two of those couples, and they're both young, you know, they're in their 20s, and, and uh, um, they're super young, and I was working on their, their services, so just, you know, the, their uh, wedding ceremony, and reading through the wedding vows, and it, I got a little emotional just sitting in my office thinking about them, because I thought, man, they have no idea what they're saying in these wedding vows. You know, they do not know. And so they, it's like, you're going to get up in front of people, and, uh, and before the Lord and before his body, and they're going to make this vow and say, I'm going to commit to you with everything I am for the rest of my life. And for better, for worse, you know, I'm going to protect you, to cherish you, comfort you, provide for you, whether I'm sick or not, whether we're poor or not, everything. And that's a massive vow. And the magnitude of it is like, you know, it's beyond sometimes what you can know at, you know, at 21, 22 years old. And it's a very astounding thing to do. Very similar to me sitting across the table at an IHOP at 18 years old and telling somebody I love them. I had no idea what that meant. No idea. And what God would do with that. And Jesus says to that teacher of the law, still to us today, he says at some point, some point in your life, you understand and you receive the love God has for you, you recognize that he loves you and this is who he is, and then you respond you say, God, I'm willing. I may not even know what all that means, my mind and my strength and my heart and my soul. But you say to God, just like I said to Debbie years ago, I love you. I love you, God. And I want to love you with everything I am. I'm going to give you all my love, my emotion, my action, everything. For us, for us if we're going to do that, if we're going to ignite and grow our love for God, wherever we are, you know, whatever point we are, it always happens the same way. We receive again his love. And, you know, the Jewish people, they recited the Shema twice a day. The reason why is because they needed to hear it again. They received it again. And they respond back with love to God. So again, some of us this morning, you may not know, man, do I, where am I at with love for God? Have I ever really done that? Some of you may have become complacent. You go through the motions, but it's less passionate or less intimate, something less than, than the genuine love God asks for. Some of you are growing in your love for God, but may want to love him more. All of us start from the same place, and we do it again. We can do it again this morning. We receive. We shema. We hear so to receive what God wants to tell us. We listen to his voice. Hear, beloved church, that God, your personal and mighty God, is everything for you. 
He's your source. We receive his love with the fullness of the emotion of God and the passion that he has for us. We revel in it. We celebrate it. We receive it. And we say and declare, man, this is our God who loves me. And then we respond back. We can respond back to the Lord this morning with everything we have. Whether we fully grasp what that means or not, we start with just saying, I love you, Lord. I love you. I want to love you more fully and more deeply with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength for the rest of my life. That's what Jesus says. This is the meaning of everything. It's the most important thing you will ever do. This is it. I give you everything. I love you, God. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. What I actually want to do is we'll take just a minute. I want to just give a minute to, to be quiet. And uh, the, we're going to pass the offering basket. I'll pray for us. We'll pass the offering basket. But just a minute here to just reflect and say, God, am I, have I received that from you? To recognize who you are for me. And then to respond back with love for him. Say, I love you, God. So just be a minute of silence and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for who you are for us. You create the universe. Lord, you sit over it. As I was reading a psalm this morning. He, the, uh, the Lord is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. He's just enthroned above everything. At the same time, God, you are personal and care about us as individuals, as men and women that you created and love deeply. And passionately. And so we thank you for that. God, we want to recognize it and receive it. We do. We recognize it and receive it again this morning. Let me tell you, Lord, we love you. We love you. Ignite in our heart a growing love for you. I pray that each day, each day, we grow in our love for you. It's your call and your commandment. You say it's the greatest thing we'll ever do. Everything else hangs on it. So we tell you this morning that we love you. Thank you for your love for us. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen.